most brilliant uh, mechanical engineering mind of anyone he had ever known. He said he was the only man he knew who could take a complex motor apart piece by piece and put it back together again piece by piece in his mind. He said the Ford plant assembly line broke down one day and they couldn't get it going. He was calculating his losses in the desperation he sent for Stemmets. Stemmets went into the factory and in a few minutes he got the assembly line going again full speed. Ford said a few days later, Stemmets sent him his bill. He sent the bill for $10,000. Ford wrote back, he said, Dear Mr. Stemmets, don't you think $10,000 is a bit steep for a few minutes of tinkering around? Stemmets wrote back, Dear Mr. Ford, for the few minutes of tinkering around, the bill is $10. For knowing where to tinker, the bill is $9,990. Which is to say, when it comes to the word of God, the spirit of Jesus Christ knows where to tinker. He knows the needs of every heart in this room. Whatever it is, he has designed his word to speak to it. And it's always my prayer that the message will accomplish that. I'm going to uh, turn and read the scripture. I want you to see it with me. Here's our text for this morning. When Moses uh, sent them to explore Canaan, he said, Go up through the Negev and on into the hill country. See what the land is like and whether the people who live there are strong or weak, few or many. What kind of land do they live in? Is it good or bad? What kind of towns do they live in? Are they unwalled or fortified? How is the soil? Is it fertile or poor? Are there trees on it or not? Do your best to bring back some of the fruit of the land. So they went up and explored the land, and when they reached the valley of Eshkol, they cut off a branch bearing a single cluster of grapes. Two of them carried it on a pole between them. At the end of 40 days, they returned from exploring the land. They came back to Moses and Aaron and the whole Israelite community. They reported to them and to the whole assembly and showed them the fruit of the land. They gave Moses this account. We went into the land to which you sent us, and it does flow with milk and honey. But the people who live there are powerful, and the cities are fortified and very large. We even saw the descendants of Enoch there. The Amalekites live in the Negev, and the Hittites and Jebusites and Amorites live in the hill country. Then Caleb silenced the people before Moses and said, We should go up and take possession of the land, for we can certainly do it. But the men who had gone up with him said, We can't attack those people. They are stronger than we are. And they spread among them, the Israelites, a bad report about the land they had explored. Whoops. There we go. They said, The land we explored devours those living in it. All the people we saw there are great of great size. We seemed like grasshoppers in our own eyes, and we looked to them the same. <clears throat> that night, all the people of the community raised their voices and wept aloud. 
Sometimes I uh, think of this uh, cartoon uh, of the poor soul to his psychiatrist. I have an inferiority complex, and it's not even a very good one. That is really, really low. And so we have it. The children of Israel are now on the brink of the land of promise that the Lord has promised them. They have spent 400 years in Egyptian captivity. And in the miraculous events of the Exodus, they have made their escape from Egypt, found their way to the foot of Mount Sinai in the first few months of their travels and cut a covenant with God at Mount Sinai. Now they come to the land of Canaan in the Negev, the southern part of Palestine. They send a reconnaissance committee of one man from each of the 12 tribes into the land of Canaan to spy it out to find out its resources. So they go into the land and they return with a unanimous verdict. It is a rich and fertile land. It is extremely productive. Its fruit is enormous. As a matter of fact, I have been there. On one of the Holy Land trips, our guide was the son of the mayor of the city of Jericho. He said, I have gone down to the marketplace here in Jericho, and I have seen cabbage heads the size of automobile tires in the marketplace. To this day, it is some of the most rich and fertile land in the entire world. And so the unanimous verdict is, it is wonderful. But here the verdict breaks down. Only two of the twelve say, we can take it. It's our destiny before God. It's the greatest moment in our lives, in our history. And then there were ten. You may remember the song. Twelve men went to spy on Canaan. Ten were bad and two were good. Well, the ten said, wait just a minute. Don't you remember those cities? Their walls were thick and tall. The men in them were soldiers who were armed to the teeth, experienced in war, and they were big and they were strong. And we were weak. We seemed so small before them, so squatty, we felt like we were grasshoppers and they were giants. Ever felt like that? I have. More than once in my life. I remember going to uh, my first day of public school, West Des Moines, Iowa, kindergarten, the desk of the teacher seemed like a fortress. She seemed to me like a giant, and I felt so small. And on to junior high and high school, and um, then college, and then um, Indiana University. Here I was on a campus, huge campus. Nobody knew me. I didn't know anybody. They were just moving from punch cards to computers when I attended. So I was just a number in a computer on a campus of 30,000 students. I felt so 
insignificant. I remember the first sermon I preached in our college chapel. I looked out on the students. Some of them had been my classmates even and my professors. And uh, I said from experience of having sat through so many chapel services, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, I wonder if this guy can preach. Well, let me tell you what I'm thinking. I'm wondering if you'd know good preaching if you heard it. No. <laughs> Sometimes grasshoppers can have some audacity. I think in that moment I had audacity. Uh, shame on me. This is a perennial feeling. Most people, most people experience shyness, some sense of inadequacy at some point in their life. And uh, why is it? Well, where do you go? Where do you find solution for the feelings of weakness and inferiority? Well, culture is no help at all because we live in a culture of superstars, you know. If, um, if you can knock the top out of the IQ charts, if you're beautiful, if you're big and strong, if you're a successful athlete, if you have all the trappings of success around you, then you count. Otherwise, you're just a face in the crowd. And um, the nation worships superstars. The rest don't feel like they even belong or are worthy and feel ground down and feelings of inadequacy. And I see this even now in the spate epidemic of youth suicides. And um, I wonder, well, where, where can we go to solve our problem of grasshopperness. <clears throat> Years ago, I uh, <clears throat> was in a um, youth group, our youth group of our church, had a boy in it by the name of Paul. And uh, Paul had, uh, I was in junior high, Paul had a Triumph motorcycle. I remember I was in church camp, and he would drive that Triumph motorcycle into church camp, and all the girls of the camp would gather around his motorcycle. I, I had a bicycle. The girls weren't interested. They just weren't interested. His folks were divorced, and uh, so he, in, as they competed, would supply him with anything he wanted. They bought him a twenty two automatic rifle. And uh, <clears throat> he... Uh, Target practiced into a passenger train there in Des Moines. Shot out several windows, jeopardized the lives of people. I remember the day the two black and white patrol cars pulled up in front of Callanan Junior High School and took Paul off to reformatory. That's what we called it back then, reformatory. A few months later, he was released. <coughs> and... Um, one of the conditions of his parole was that he had to go to church. So he attended our church, and so he was in our youth group. Now, my mother and father were the youth sponsors, and this particular Sunday night, the youth program was at our house, just a mile from the church, and we would close our youth meetings with uh, prayer circles, and there were enough kids in our youth group that we had two prayer circles. And I was in one of the prayer circles, and I was standing right next to Paul. And so if you wanted to pray, you would pray. If you didn't want to pray, you'd squeeze the hand of the one next to you. We went around the circle. Paul did not pray. He squeezed my hand, and so I had the closing prayer. We're waiting for the other group to finish. And Paul turns to me. Now, he was a big guy. He had his motor leather, black leather motorcycle jacket on. 
And I wasn't very big in junior high. As a matter of fact, my nickname was Pewald. Pewald, I envy you. And I'm thinking, what? You've got everything, and you envy me? Yeah, he said, you'll probably amount to something. He said, I've got this criminal record now, and I probably won't amount to anything. This was at a time in my life when I felt very much like I was on the outside looking in. And the kids who were successful and had all the accruements of um, importance seemed to have it, and, and I didn't. But I can say this, from that grasshopper experience to Bible college, when I went to Bible college, for me, it was like getting out of prison. Because here I was with those who shared my faith, who had some of the same goals and ambitions in life as I. And it was so, so very, very different. Where do you look to overcome our grasshopperness? Well, there were 10 there who had nowhere to go. Two said, we can do it. It is in our power to do it. Well, where did they get, where did they get that? There's a guy by the name <coughs> of um, <coughs> Fred Craddock. He's ranked one of the top ten, was ranked before he died, top ten preachers in America. He's a graduate of Johnson Bible College, taught at Emory University on preaching. But he tells this fascinating story. I want to pass it on to you. He said he and his wife loved to vacation up in the Smoky Mountains of eastern Tennessee. They loved to dine at a place called the Blackberry Inn up there in the Smokies. So he said one evening on vacation, they were sitting there at the dining table in one evening, and an old man there in the restaurant came over to their table and said, You folks on vacation? Yeah. Are you having a good time? He said, I wanted to say, yeah, we were, till you started bothering us. Um, what do you do, he said. Well, uh, Craddock said, I'm a minister. Oh, you're a minister. Well, let me tell you about a minister. Craddock thought, I've heard so many stories about ministers. Oh, do I have to hear another one? And he sat down. And he said, do you mind if I sit down? And he, uh, he said, uh, I was born back up in these hills. My mother was not married. So the kids at school had a name for me. I never felt like I really belonged. I did not eat my lunch with them. I would take my lunch out and I would hide someplace and eat it by myself because I didn't fit. Once in a while, my mother would take me to town, and I could tell the townsfolk were looking over me, trying to figure out whose I was. And the reproach that fell on mom fell on me. He said, at that point in life, I began attending the Laurel Springs Christian Church. Years ago, incidentally, I visited that church. It still exists. Laurel Springs Christian Church. They had a minister there. He said, <clears throat> he scared me to death. He had a big white beard, and he said a Prince Albert coat and striped trousers. Scared me to death, but he fascinated me with his preaching. 
He said, I go to church late and leave early lest somebody catch me and say, what's, what's a boy like you doing in a church? Then one Sunday he said the uh, aisle got crowded and I wasn't able to get out. I was stuck and I felt the footfall of that pastor. I was sure it was he behind me. I peeked out of the corner of my eye and he said I saw that white beard and then I knew it was he. He reached out, he put his hand on my shoulder, he spun me around, he looked me square in the face, and he said, why, boy, you look just like a son of, and he paused, and he said, I knew he was going to hurt me. Then he said, why, boy, you look just like a son of God. I see a striking resemblance. Swatted me on my backside and he said, Now, you go out and claim your inheritance. Craddock said, My wife and I were so taken by the old man's story. We asked him his name. He said, Well, my name is Ben Hooper. And he got up and he walked away. Ben Hooper. Craddock said, I remembered my mother telling me how for two successive elections for the governor of the state of Tennessee, the people of Tennessee had elected an illegitimate son by the name of Ben Hooper. When was he born? He was born that moment that pastor preacher put his arm on that young man's shoulder and snapped him from the track of grasshopperness and put him on the road to glory. Where do you go? Well, it's not always easy, is it? Joshua and Caleb, who were among those who had explored the land, tore their clothes and said to the entire Israelite assembly, The land we passed through and explored is exceedingly good. If the Lord is pleased with us, he will lead us into that land. If the Lord is pleased with us, he will lead us into that land, a land flowing with milk and honey, and will give it to us. Only do not rebel against the Lord, and do not be afraid of the people of the land, because we will swallow them up. Their protection is gone, but the Lord is with us. Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid of them. you go, what message speaks to that paralyzing fear of inadequacy? I remember a young girl, it was about this time in the summer, I was dean of students, sitting in my office planning the freshman orientation week. This little girl came into my office, I could tell she was um, downcast. I said, can I help you? Oh, I don't know, Mr. Ewald. I'm afraid that I've made the wrong decision coming here. Oh, well, tell me about it. Well, she said, my parents did not want me to come to a Christian college. I have an uncle in a neighboring state who offered me a job in his tavern that he would put me through the university in his town. Um, But I chose uh, to come here. Tell me more. She said, well, I'm not very smart. I didn't do that well in high school. I'm not sure I'm going to be able to do college work. In the catalog of sins, she said, I've done it all. 
um, I'm not sure that I have the moral strength to make it in the Christian walk. And as she poured out this sad story, I said, well, Marilyn, why did you come? Well, she said, it was an event that happened this summer at church camp. It was a campfire service, and the speaker was talking about the grace of God. And he said, you know, Jesus doesn't care where you've been or what you've done. Regardless of how bad you think your heart is, if you're willing to surrender to him, he wants it. He will take you from wherever you have been. And out of what you think may be an impossible heart, he will make a heart after his own. And Marilyn said, when I heard that, I could not resist him. I said, Marilyn, I think you've made the right decision. And um, she went on. She um, lasted two years in college. She didn't get great grades, but she passed all her classes. Married a young man. Soon after that, I got a letter from her. She was up in the Chicago area. She had married a young man who was a deacon in a church, and they were both serving in a church up in Chicago. And she wrote a letter to thank us for helping her through that dark period in her life. But at that moment when she was pouring out this story of a young Christian who had hardly been a Christian for a few weeks, going through this kind of a trial, I wanted to cry out, God, if you're God, why don't you act like God and help this kid? Did. He was. Shame on me. If God is with us, No walls are too high, too thick. No army or enemy too formidable for us. Emmanuel. That's the first time that little phrase appears in the Bible. If God is with us, Emmanuel, walls are not too thick. Remember a story about a little guy playing ball. And the ball got away from him, went over into the neighbor's yard, and the boys next door thought they'd play a game of keep away. He went over to the fence. He said, okay, come on, guys, give me back my ball. (laughs) It's not your ball now. It's ours. We got it. Finders, keepers, losers, weepers. Tough. He went back into the house, dejected, countenance followed. Dad said, son, what's the matter? Oh, the guys next door, they got my ball, and they won't give it back. Well, Dad, thinking to teach his son a little self-reliance and uh, challenge him, he said, well, son, I want you to go back over there one more time and ask him to give you back your ball. You tell him, give me back my ball. Well, he went over the fence again. Come on, you guys, give me back my ball. It's my ball. Nope, it's ours now. Tough luck. He goes back into the house almost at the point of tears. His father says, son, what happened? He said, Dad, they still won't give me back my ball. Son, I want you to do one more thing. He said, I want you to go back over there one more time and tell them to give you back your ball. Only this time, I'm going to go with you. He straightened up his shoulders. He walked across that alleyway over to that fence. All right, you guys, give me back my ball. This time, you better do it because I brung my daddy with me. 
Life is not a solo. Life is a duet. The Christian life is a duet. And the gospel of Jesus Christ is the power to say to this world, get out of our way because we brung our daddy with us. Father God, thank you for showing us your presence among us, that you will not leave us alone, you will not forsake us, that you promise to abide with us as long as we commit ourselves to you and are surrendered to your will. God, thank you for Emmanuel, your presence with us. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. I like this closing chorus, God will make a way when there seems to be no way. Understand there's a baptistry here in this church. You know, 